Have you ever been disappointed? <laughs> Have you ever been so excited about or invested in something only to find out later that it was all a joke or a lie? In his book, A Skeleton in God's Closet, author Paul Meyer tells the fictional story of a college professor who, uh, on a sabbatical, goes to the Middle East to consult on an archaeological dig where they have allegedly uncovered the remains of Jesus. Well, you can see what the problem with this is because for billions of people on the earth, the crux, the cornerstone, the linchpin of, the, of our Christian faith assumes the fact of the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus. And as you read the book, the story unfolds and you see how, how this affects the world as people's lives and faith and their understanding is turned upside down. And so um, this morning, I want to talk just briefly about the resurrection, since we just sang about it, um, what that means. And, and if you have your Bibles, please turn or tap uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and, I, and I'll say this, without the resurrection, we are to be pitied above all else. Billy Graham, he even said that, that if he were an enemy of Christianity, he would aim right at the resurrection because it is the heart of it, without the resurrection, and Paul affirms this here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 17. He says, if Christ is not alive, so this is post-resurrection, right? Jesus has already died. And so he says, if Christ is not alive now, you are still lost in your sins and your faith is a fantasy. It would also mean that those believers in Christ who have passed away have simply perished. There is no heaven. There is no hope of what happens when you die. If the only benefit of our hope in Christ is limited to this life on earth, we deserve to be pitied more than all others. And so the validity of Christianity hinges entirely on one seemingly impossible act. And so this message this morning is titled, if you're taking notes, Delicate Like a Volcano. So the song we just sang a moment ago, as I mentioned, it holds a lot of the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed, if you're not familiar with what a creed is, is basically an ancient set of like-held beliefs, okay? So it's a belief system. And this is something that, that every Christian on the face of the earth for hundreds of years basically have attested to that they believe in. These are the fundamentals of our Christianity. And it reads like this, if you're not familiar with it. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he, what? I almost heard you, church. On the third day, he, what? Oh, I feel like we are, we're about to get it here. On the third day, he rose again. Hallelujah. He ascended into heaven. We're going to come back to this in a little bit. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy lowercase c, Catholic, as in universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the what? Resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. 
So this is pretty much the basics of what every Christian, regardless of the denomination that you've affiliated with over hundreds of years, right? This is the basics that everybody would agree on. You say, well, how did it come to this? I'm so glad you asked. If you still have your Bibles open, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to back up to verse 1. And these are the words of the Apostle Paul, again speaking, and he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Why does he say remind? This is Paul's, not Paul's first visit to Corinth, right? Or it's not his first visit. He's writing a letter after he planted a church there years before. And so he's reminding them of a gospel he preached to them back then. And he says, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. This is the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And then Paul begins to recite what, what appears to be some sort of creedal statement about the resurrection. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then Jesus starts making special guest appearances, right? He's running the late night circuit. And he says he, first, he appears first, verse 5, to Cephas. And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, which is the Bible's way of saying they've died. Uh, but what's cool about this, he appeared, the resurrected Jesus appeared to 500 people at once. And even though Paul's writing this letter 20-something years after that fact, he's saying most of them are still alive. You can go and ask them what they saw with their own eyes. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, who was the brother of Jesus, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, Paul, also. And so from this structure, actually, Linnell, if you could back up to the first, to, to whatever it is. Nope, next. Yep. Here, you can kind of see the beginning, the outline of the structure of what we have is the Apostles' Creed, that Christ died for our sins. In fact, you can almost hear the cadence in it, right, in the creed. Christ died according to the scriptures. He varied according to the scriptures. He rose according to the scriptures, right? And it's because people memorize things by making them sticky. We do this today still. Now I know my... Yeah, someone's heard that song before. <laughs> Preach. We should start singing that. I think you guys sang that song more than any of the other ones this morning. Maybe we should start making that in the rotation. Um, um, and so we see through, through the scripture account and through the Apostles' Creed that was sung um, earlier, you see that the resurrection is at the center of everything. And without it, everything crumbles. But here's the problem with the resurrection, is that dead people don't come back to life. At least I've never seen it, right? Modern science would generally attest to the fact that dead people don't come back to life after they're truly dead, not just mostly dead. That was Princess Bride. Okay. Wow, that bombed. Um, but this poses the question, can we really, in this day and age, believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead, from the grave, or is this some kind of tall tale or legend? The dictionary defines legend as this, a traditional story sometimes popularly regarded as historical but unauthenticated. 
So maybe you've heard of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Right, there's a lot of tradition that people assume that maybe it actually happened, but there is no historical account of it ever happening. Or maybe the lost city of Atlantis. No offense to Aquaman. You know, or, or dare I say the Loch Ness Monster? Oh, I got some skeptics here. I've seen the picture. I've seen it's grainy, but I've seen the picture. I've been to Scotland. There's no monster. But regardless, okay, regardless, there are some people who would look at the resurrection, some non-believers that would look at the resurrection as a legend. It is something that has grown beyond what it was. Maybe it's like St. Nicholas. Yeah, he was a good man who did a lot of great things, but over time, the story got bigger and bigger and bigger. Or maybe he's like, you know, one of those, yeah, maybe the disciples thought they saw Jesus, just like some of those people in the Northwest think they've seen Sasquatch. There are some people who would like us to think that our faith is based on misplaced information. That the idea of the resurrection is a nice idea, merely a nice idea with inspirational value. And through the lens of modern science, it would be easy for us to think that people in ancient times were not as sophisticated as us, right? Well, back then, they didn't really know about this sort of thing. They thought maybe it was possible to be mostly dead for a few days and then to pop back out. But here's the thing. N.T. Wright, leading New Testament scholar, says this. The idea that a person cannot rise from the dead is not a new idea. The first Christians knew this was as, was as absurd of a claim then as it would be now. Dead people don't rise, and yet they said it. This is not a modern understanding of science, okay? Homer, Plato, Socrates all knew that the dead don't rise. Jesus' resurrection was the prototype, in ancient times, if a leader of a movement died, they would find a new one. There was no precedent for Jesus' model. So the early Christians knew that dead people didn't rise, and yet they believed it instantly. They were reciting creeds like this. is dated to within six months to a year, probably, of the actual resurrection event. This had been an adopted belief and creedal statement circulating through the early Christians. And within a couple of years, people were dying for this belief. Remember Stephen? Why? <laughs> Why would you die for something as ridiculous as this? Well, because they were there. They saw the resurrected Jesus. They interacted with the resurrected Jesus. They experienced an impossible life. And so they were compelled to live an impossible life, the type of life that doesn't make sense unless it actually happened. Myths are not this way. Legends are not this way. In fact, an eminent historian from Oxford University by the name of A.N. Sherwin White studied the rate of development for a legend and concluded that not even two generations, which if you classify a generation as 30 years, that not even two generations is enough for a legend to develop. And here we have people dying for this belief within a couple of years. And, you know, and Stephen wasn't the only one. In this series, we're looking at people who have encountered Jesus and how their lives have changed as a result, right? And I know I'm cheating a little because this is the resurrected Jesus. It's not like the, the regular incarnate Jesus. But look at what happened to some of these people. If we look back at 1 Corinthians 15, 
in verse 5, we see he appeared to Cephas, who was who? Peter, one of the disciples. And Peter's the same Peter that denied Christ three times, but eventually went on to become so committed to the belief in his resurrection that he was eventually crucified for his faith. And as tradition has it, is that he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel like he, he, would, he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Savior. And then to the 12. Who are the 12? The 12 disciples, right? Yeah, well, weren't there actually just 11? Because didn't Judas like off himself before? Well, well, but remember, he had a replacement. Anybody remember his name? Matthias, yeah. And so they did have 12, 11 of whom went on to die martyrs' deaths. And you may think, okay, who's the guy that got off the hook? <laughs> John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, but if, here's what you count getting off the hook, right? He was boiled in oil in Rome. It's not that they didn't try to kill him. It just didn't stick, okay? And so he's sitting there boiling in, in boiling oil, but his body is not scarring. His body is not burning, and everyone that was in attendance that had lined up to watch this ended up coming to salvation, <laughs> believing in this resurrected Jesus because of this miracle. And so Rome thought, okay, well, I guess if we can't kill him, what do we do with him? We'll just banish him <laughs> to the island of Patmos, and, which was fine with John. You know, He was ready for a little me time, and, and he had this, this, this idea for a new revelatory book that he wanted to write. And um, bad. <laughs> So if you count getting boiled alive in oil, getting off the hook, then okay, there you go. But the rest ended up dying for their faith because of what they believed. And some were crucified, some were stabbed to death, some were clubbed to death, some were burned to death. Remember Thomas? Doubting Thomas, the guy who missed church the first time Jesus showed up in the resurrected body, right? Because there was a football game on. But fortunately, Jesus had mercy on him. By the, uh, yeah. <laughs> By the way, nah. all right, Jesus had mercy on him though, right? And so the next time he showed up to church, Jesus was like, hey, Tommy, I'm here. And he's like, who this? He's like, I don't believe that's actually Jesus. And he's like, well, come, put your hands in my side. Touch my scars. And this doubting Thomas eventually had a spear run through him in India for preaching the gospel of the resurrected Christ. You're thinking, this is getting dark. <laughs> I don't know if I want to encounter Jesus. Well, we'll get there. Look at verse 7. Then he appeared to James. James was the brother of Jesus. And you would think if there was anyone on the planet that may have doubted whether his brother was actually God, it might have been James, right? By the way, what's the word for James in the Greek? Jacob. Where do we get the word James from? King James Version, yeah. <laughs> Good friend of mine says every, every, uh, every uh, Bible interpreter is a liar. <laughs> or translator is a liar. We read in our preference, James was not brothers, Jesus' brother until King James commissioned his translation of the scripture. But that's by the by. Um. But this James was so convinced that his brother was the resurrected Christ that he ended up having his head cut off for his belief. So did Paul, the guy who wrote this letter. 
eventually. And you say, yeah, 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 but people die for misguided religious beliefs all the time. Just watch the news, right? There's, there, who's the latest terrorist attack or suicide bomber? But here's the thing. These people on this list, they were in a pit position to know that it was a lie. They were there. They would have known if it was not the physical resurrected Jesus. And they did not back down. They could not stop talking about what they had seen. I wish we had time this morning to look into the historicity of the resurrection because we find a lot of biblical and extra biblical uh, evidence for it. And this morning, if you're a person who is questioning this whole Christianity thing or you're not convinced of the resurrection, I would challenge you, put it to the test. Look into it. That's one of the things that I love about Christianity is we, we, we encourage and welcome skeptics, right? For 2,000 years, skeptics have rained down on the idea of the resurrection, but yet no one has ever disproved it. But a lot of skeptics have come to faith because of it. That's what happens when you actually look into it, when you don't just write it off as impossible because it's never happened before. What if the Wright brothers had written off manned flight just because it never happened before? That's impossible. It's never been done. How many airline miles have you logged this year? (laughs) Dr. Dan, I don't think there's enough zeros right now. Um, Here's the thing. If you are, I encourage you, put it to the test. Christianity is not delicate. It is not merely nice ideals and wishful thinking or inspirational ideas. It is is there to be looked into. And so a couple of resources, um, if you feel like looking into this on your own time, there's a great book called The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. If you don't want to read a whole seven or 800 pages on the resurrection, there's a Cliff Notes version within a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. And you can, they got about a 70-page light overview brief summary of some of the evidence that's out there for the resurrection. Um, but here's, here's what it boils down to. These appearances or these encounters with Jesus compelled people to a costly mission. And the same Peter that denied Christ three times, seven weeks later, he's preaching at Pentecost next week. And 3,000 people come to salvation in one day. What changed in that seven weeks? He encountered the resurrected Jesus. All right, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen a volcano erupt? Like a real one or like one of these? (laughs) How many did a baking soda vinegar volcano sometime in your childhood? (laughs) They are powerful. (laughs) Um, I will tell you that. I have a buddy who lives outside of Seattle, actually, and his mom, Linnell, is running the slides today for me. But but I was out visiting Josh a little while ago, and we were driving to a breakfast place near, kind of go near Mount Rainier out there, which is an active stratovolcano. And, And he's telling me about the neighborhoods, and he says, yeah, these houses are actually pretty affordable, but they're in like a lava plain. I'm like, oh, what? It's like, yeah, the volcano insurance can be kind of expensive here. I'm like, that's a thing? <laughs> but evidently it is. And there's a lot of active volcanoes. In fact, this year alone, so far, to date, there have been 55 volcanic eruptions from 54 unique volcanoes. Is that crazy? This stuff is going on, but they're a little more powerful than this. Some of you um, in this room 
probably remember the events that happened around Saint, Mount St. Helens, May 18th, 1980. If you turn your eye to the screen. At 8.32 a.m. on May 18th, 1980, they get their answer. We are directly above Mount St. Helens now, and there is no question that the volcanic activity has started. Smoke! A massive earthquake causes the huge bulge on the mountain to collapse, removing a mile-wide chunk of the north face. With an energy equivalent to 1,500 Hiroshima atom bombs, rock and superheated gas shoot from the volcano at terrifying speeds of up to 400 miles per hour. Such is the force of Mount St. Helens' lateral eruption that an incredible 1,300 feet of mountain disappears almost instantly. Now the eruption enters its next phase. Expanding magma inside the volcano sends thousands of tons of scorching rock and gas high into the atmosphere. Now that's an eruption. That one's got a little bit of juice behind it. Think of that. Triggered by an earthquake, energy equivalent to 1,500 Hiroshima atom bombs, which is roughly 24 megatons of thermal energy. Like, that's a lot of juice. It, was, it, it caused a disturbance a mile wide, a landslide. It blew, the top, it blew 1,300 feet at the top of the mountain clean off. That's some serious power. The smoke and the ash plumes went 15 miles into the sky, into the atmosphere. And you're probably thinking, Josiah, why on earth are you talking about volcanoes? Well, for one, they're cool. But for two, because they are a violent force. And in Matthew 11, verse 12, we see a description similar made about the kingdom of God, okay? So we've talked about this idea that the resurrection, the linchpin that our Christianity, that our faith is built on, is not as delicate maybe as some would like it to be. But in fact, it can be an incredible force to be reckoned with. And Matthew 11 verse 12 says, the kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing. And some translations say the kingdom has suffered violence, but the picture behind it is of an army taking siege of a city. And if you've ever watched lava flow down, it consumes everything in its path. There's nothing that'll stand up to it, right? It's a force to be reckoned with. But here's the other thing I love about the picture of the volcano, is that before the eruption, there was a whole lot that's going on building up to it. That 24 megatons of energy was not just created at the eruption, it was released at the eruption. Have you ever heard the saying, she's going to blow or he's going to blow? Something like that, right? We, talk, we, we say that when someone's angry and you can almost see it building up within them. There's this, this, this energy building as their body tenses and their face gets red and you start to see smoke come out their ears, at least in the cartoons, and then finally they just, ah! right? There's something that builds on the inside. When we look at the four aspects of Jesus' earthly ministry, in which we have a holiday for each, by the way, what do we have? The first aspect was his incarnation, which we celebrate with what holiday? Christmas. That's right. Insert your favorite Christmas carol here. But this is the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us. This is everything from Jesus entering earth as a baby through his earthly ministry up to the cross. Okay? The incarnation. The second is the crucifixion, which we celebrate with what holiday? Yeah, Tenebrae, Good Friday. Mm-hmm. Or good Thursday, if that's your persuasion. 
And the crucifixion is Jesus now going to the cross, taking on the sin of the world for him, becoming our atoning lamb, paying the price for our sin once and for all. And then he died. His heart stopped beating. His lungs stopped pumping. And he was buried. But then there's a third aspect of his earthly ministry, and that is the resurrection, which is what holiday? Easter's, yeah. And this is where this dead Jesus suddenly, air entered his lungs again, and he began breathing, and blood started pumping through his heart. And he once was dead, totally dead, not just mostly dead, but now he was alive. And those three aspects there, those are like the power that was building inside the volcano waiting to be released. But they were not yet released. Even after the resurrection, they weren't yet released because there was one more aspect of Jesus' earthly ministry to fulfill. And if you're not on staff or you're not in my family, what, what major holiday did we celebrate this last Thursday? Sweet. <laughs> Ascension Day. <laughs> Fourth is the ascension of Christ, right? That was his final aspect of his ministry here on earth. And what is this? Well, we see it appear in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. It says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, verse 9, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen a space shuttle take off or a rocket, but I picture that, right? A whole big crowd of people like... You still see it? You still see? I think I see a shadow. No, no. Is everyone still looking? I don't want to be the first to look away if they can still see Jesus up there, right? Well, as they're looking up intently into the sky, two men dressed in white stood beside them and said, verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Because this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And here's why the ascension is so important and why it was what I consider to be the trigger, the earthquake for the eruption of our faith that we call Christianity. Because without the ascension, the effects of the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection would not have been felt by us. I heard one pastor equate it to to building a house, furnishing it, but then never actually moving in. Or or of preparing an elaborate meal, right? And setting the table and and lighting the, the candles, but never actually sitting down to eat. Without the ascension, the power would not have been released, but it was. It was the trigger that caused what to shoot out? Jesus followers. And as Jesus followers were shot out, they went doing two things. They, were, they, they went out worshiping and they went out witnessing. They went out worshiping, they went out witnessing. Luke chapter 24 verse 52 says, And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Why were they in the temple blessing God? Why would the Christians now be in the Jewish temple? 
They're not worshiping. (laughs) They're witnessing. The temple was where the people who did not understand the resurrected Christ, as they understood it, that was their target audience. You know, where is your target audience? Where is your Jewish temple, so to speak? But rather, as our vision statement says, where are you engaged and influential? And how are you being salt and light? When people at your work see you, do they see you worshiping and witnessing? When people at your school observe you, do they see you worshiping and witnessing? When people on the freeway are driving behind you, do they see you worshiping with a middle finger in the air? No? Okay. Hope not. Because <laughs> that would be witnessing to something else. Um, salt and light. Mark sixteen twenty says, And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. What's interesting about the attitude of these Christians now celebrating the fact that Jesus is gone is that previously they were dreading it. Remember Peter? He was trying to convince Jesus not to go to the cross. Why? Because they wanted a personal Jesus. They wanted someone they could go to when they had a problem with something, but someone they didn't have to be committed to living with every day, every hour. And the disciples thought that the ascension was about Jesus going away, but actually, in reality, it was about him drawing near. In John 16, 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's going to be so much better for you if I leave. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. Jesus is like, okay, I'm no longer going to be just standing beside you physically sometimes. I'm going to be living inside of you all the time. You know what's amazing about Christianity is that we don't have a Mecca. We don't have a holy land to make a pilgrimage to. If you want to go to the Jewish holy land and see where Jesus walked, like that'd be awesome. I think that could be incredibly powerful. But wherever we go as Christians, we carry Jesus with us, right? We don't go to a temple because where is the temple in the new covenant? It's in us. That's right. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Joel, come on up. Next Sunday, we celebrate Pentecost which is the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's the day where we see how a putz named Peter seven weeks previously was now turned into this powerhouse, this force, this lava eh, to be reckoned with, right? And it's because they believed in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is real. Its power is real. And it's available to you now. Does your life reflect this power? We read a line in the Apostles' Creed that said, I believe he will come again to judge the living and the dead. D.L. Moody said that no preacher should be able to talk about or preach about hell without tears in their eyes. 
But this morning, I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't make it abundantly clear here. Hell is real. Judgment is real. One day, every single one of us, whether you're a believer or not, is going to stand before God. What will be said about you? Would it be said that John was a volcano? He was a force, spiritual force to be reckoned with in this world. Jordan, she was a volcano. Nothing, nothing could stop her. In just a moment, Pastor Kurt's going to come and lead us in the sacrament of communion. But I'd encourage you, if you want some time to reflect and to consider, when is the last time that your life showed, displayed that kind of power? Say, well, I received the Holy Spirit once, but did you know that you need to be refilled? We read in Acts chapter 13, verse 52, that the disciples were continually filled with joy. They were continually filled with the Holy Spirit. The word spirit there is the word pneuma, which means breath. And I like to picture as frequently as I take a breath, I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a cycle, just like repentance. It's a cycle. It's not just something we do once, but it should be as natural to us as breathing. And if you're in here and you're not a believer, if you never received Jesus Christ into your heart, um, why don't you just take a quick moment and make this the day to enter into this journey of faith. And just in, in the quietest of your heart, with every eye closed, every head bowed, let's just just... Just believe these words with me. Father God, I confess that I have sinned. I confess that my life has fallen short of your standard of perfection. But God, this morning I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And I receive him into my heart. Jesus, come into my heart. Make me new. And fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Kurt. Would you come?